as many of you will remember the format for the first part of the Vasa will have evening meetings that last about three hours. Sometimes a talk, sometimes a reading to begin with. And then you have the option to sit, or if you find sitting after a while too painful or difficult, and you prefer to walk, and that's okay. And then <coughs> usually about 9.30 there'll be evening chanting, or soon after, and then 10 o'clock or more or less finish. the Vasa as a whole, it's a time for us to put more effort into our meditation practice. Whether you're a newer member of the community or a more senior member of the community, there's plenty of opportunity to learn and investigate the Dhamma more than we've done before. Also just to review what we already know, what we've already practiced. We review why we come to practice, why we come to meditate. What's the purpose of it? We're all aiming for the same kind of goal. Aiming for peace of mind, peace of heart. And we have faith that the Buddha his teachings, the Dhamma, the Vinaya, <clears throat> and this lifestyle is a suitable vehicle for achieving that. And in particular, in this modern era, we have had living examples of human beings who have achieved the highest peace of mind. We have attained Nibbana, have realized the same experience of peace, same wisdom as the Buddha, as the enlightened disciples of the Buddha in the time of the Buddha. In the modern era, we've had Lumpur Man, Lumpur Cha, <coughs> and many other teachers in the forest tradition who have proven that this way of practice works. In particular, Lumpur Cha, we are ordained in a branch monastery of Lumpur Cha. 
<clears throat> and there's a certain way of practice that is familiar in <clears throat> Thailand and then around the world that is known as the Ajahn Chah tradition, for want of a better word. There's many aspects of that that we know already. The way we dress, the way we eat, the way we conduct ourselves, our lifestyle, the way we obtain alms food and requisites, the way we use them. Ajahn Chah used to say, if <clears throat> you're not yet sure how to practice, we'll always go back to basics. Always reflect on whether you're fulfilling the basic requirements and responsibilities of, of a bhikkhu or a novice or a, an agarika in the monastery. We all have duties, responsibilities that come with our position and it's up to each one of us to commit to following, putting effort into that. <clears throat> Navasa is even a time when you can assess your own commitment to the practice. How willing are you to follow the training? There's the Patimoka and the wider Vinaya lessons and training that we do. There's specific training rules and practices to the monastery itself and so on. And this is the basic beginning point of our practice. This is the Vinaya, learning to follow the system of training that Ajahn Chah left us. Every day we can review that, how well we're keeping up our own personal discipline. And you have to start with the externals first. <clears throat> because it's the externals which will help you to train to lead the mind inwards. To understand some of the higher dhammas, more refined, more subtle dhammas that the Buddha was pointing to. Nowadays, with the proliferation of reading material and information about the Dhamma, the teachings, the commentaries, and different teachers' teachings, there's a whole range of Dhamma to explore. And often we like to read a lot and gather a lot of information. <coughs> there's nothing wrong with that, but you'll notice the tendency is always to move towards the top. We like to read about the higher Dhamma, trying to explain Nibbana and concepts of not-self, conditionality and so on. And on a conceptual level that's quite helpful to give us a framework to understand the Buddhist teachings and path. But we have to remember all of this is still just external knowledge. 
And there can be some danger mixed in with that if it's not backed up by just basic practice. Because knowledge is still sanya, it's still memory, it's still ideas, concepts. <coughs> it's not yet what we really know through direct experience. <coughs> so the Vasa is a time when we can really put our effort into into the practice of training the mind, training body, speech and mind to start to experience directly and know directly some of these teachings for ourselves rather than just remembering them and forming opinions about them, views about them. Sajjan so Chah encouraged us to go back to basics. Like in the Vasa he'd encourage just practice some of the basic tudongawatas. You learn to eat in your bowl. Maybe eat one sitting only. Don't take any other drinks or breakfast or anything else. Just eat once is a very good standard. You didn't limit the food and say, oh, fast. You just said, just eat in one, one vessel at one time as a way to learn about your reaction to food, your desires and attachments that form around food and to develop some discipline. So a very simple practice that you might take on. And sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's frustrating, but you learn from that. Or you might take on practices to do with how much you sleep. So you make resolutions, sleep for a certain amount of time at night, only a certain amount of time during the day or nothing in the day or whatever suits you. There's a certain room for creativity and you can tailor make your practice, your schedule and the practices you take on to fit your particular needs. Well, this is a time where you can really do that. Just take on simple practices and then stick with them and see what it brings up. Or you might not want to take on any particular special practice but just follow whatever routine is established by myself or the Sangha and just use that as your practice. Or just follow the routine. Eat when they eat, sit when they sit, walk when they walk and so on. Just learn to follow the routine, whether you like it, whether you don't like it, you want to do it, you don't want to do it. These are what we call the basic practices. As a bhikkhu, as a monastic, that we start to learn and we can use this retreat format to help learn about ourselves with this as a background. The reason retreats can be quite useful sometimes because it's a situation where you set aside more of the distractions. Even as a bhikkhu, you can always find distractions. And as you keep developing your meditation, you start to become aware that our main problem as human beings is that our mind is constantly seeking, seeking things. It's not still. It's not quiet, it's not peaceful. It's always seeking more experiences, 
different things, new things, or just change from what we have. And this is one of the challenges that face us. You notice just in one meditation how much the mind moves. It doesn't want to stay in one place on one object for very long. And this is why we experience so much discontent, so much suffering in life. The more we start to investigate this mind, the more we realize how this constant moving, lack of stillness, lack of contentment is very tiring and it doesn't lead to a state of mind where you can really understand or have clarity in the way things are. Because the mind can't really watch itself or watch its own experience for very long. Can watch for a little bit and then it moves on to the next thing. What links it together is a lot of the time is memory. We can remember things. Once we remember something, well, we think we know it, we think we understand it. But that in itself is probably a bit of a delusion. We don't really know it with any wisdom. We're just moving from different feelings, different sensations on and on all the time. When we start to practice meditation like this, you get a real chance to look at that as an experience. You just see what your mind does in the course of, say, one or two hours. How many different thoughts come up, how many different desires and attachments come up, different feelings, pleasure and pain and so on. All of this is our real place of learning. <clears throat> We've read all the books and the suttas already. Now it's time to read the mind, read the heart, as it were. So Ajahn Chah used to encourage when you're on retreat, well, only read enough just to stimulate a little bit of practice, just to help give you some reminders or guidelines. But don't spend your whole time reading because you're missing the chance to really understand the Dhamma by reading your own heart. That's where we have to learn to build up some special qualities. And this is what the practice is all about. Learning to turn our attention inwards rather than going out towards the world all the time. And the only way we can really experience some peace and happiness is by, by being willing to do that willing to train ourselves. This experience of the mind that is always seeking on more and more, fueled by craving, it's a bit like when you wash the car, use one of those hoses which has an adjustable head. You've got water coming out, you've got a hose, but if you open the spray so it's very broad, a fine mist of water coming out, it covers a broad area, but it doesn't actually get the dirt off the car very well because there's not much power to it. If you really want to get dirt off the car, you have to change the head 
and adjust it so that it's one continuous stream of water that you can direct into a very narrow area and then you can really wash off the dirt. Our practice is a bit like that. As lay people we're living such complex active lives these days, such busy busy lives that we only ever have a very low level of self-awareness and that's why we have so much stress. When you come into the monastery you have a chance to adjust your hose head. You have a, ch a chance to really focus your awareness down onto your own body and mind to the present moment to really start to learn from your experience rather than always getting caught up into the complexities of the distractions of life your senses, the pleasures and pains of experience which spin the mind out so much. Now we have a chance to really look at this mind, start to analyze mind and body, start to look at where suffering arises and start to remedy it. And the Buddha often helped us by making his teachings very simple, very direct. You'd say sometimes, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering. Even though we have volumes and volumes of teachings from the Buddha, you know, statements like that remind us exactly what it's about. So where does suffering arise? Well, it arises at any one moment. There might be suffering arise in your experience. How does suffering arise? That's for you to learn and look look and learn and observe what's causing it. If we follow, again, follow our teacher, Ajahn Chah, he always said, well, look at where you're attaching. The nature of this unenlightened mind, the distracted mind, the dispersed mind, is it's always grasping and clinging on to its experience. Clinging on with delusion, with ignorance without understanding. So we cling on to sense impressions, we cling on to feelings, cling on to the experience of this body and mind, and then it spins us out and we suffer with it. <coughs> if we want to start to change that, then we can use a retreat opportunity like this to really look at what's going on, really learn to contemplate develop some mindfulness and some continuity of mindfulness through effort and start to look. Maybe you can very quickly learn some skills in how to face the challenge of, of dealing with suffering but not just giving in to it but actually transcending it. Uh, if we come together on these occasions and there's period where you can sit and walk <coughs> for a few hours in a continuous way. We'll just set it up as a, a little experiment for yourself. You watch what kind of mental experiences are coming up as you sit. And some days you'll find you feel very energized, full of inspiration, and you want to practice, you feel good. Other days you'll probably feel very lousy, maybe you feel 
physically tired or mentally distracted, uninspired and so on. <clears throat> Every day will be a little bit different. Every day there's something for you to look and learn from. Look at the different feelings of pleasure and pain that come up as you sit for longer periods or as you do walking meditation. Really look and observe over a period of time. If you're sitting for an hour or walking for an hour, how many different feelings of pleasure and pain arise and pass away in that period of an hour? <coughs> If you're willing to look and learn and put effort into establishing mindfulness and then contemplating, just in one hour of meditation you can already learn so much. You can watch feelings of pleasure come up, maybe as the mind calms down, but then as that fades, maybe it turns back into pain again. And then sometimes you put forth more effort into establishing mindfulness and feelings change again, disappear again. Rather than always reacting and looking for distraction, we, we use the occasion to really learn from our experience and develop some kind of higher awareness, higher knowledge that just knows the way things are. Obviously we've heard our teachers say this over, over again, you know, develop equanimity through the development of mindfulness and investigating the Dhamma, we develop equanimity towards these five khandhas, learning to see their impersonal nature, their, as it were, objects of mind, that just arise and cease according to causes and conditions. We've heard that before, so we're probably used to it to the point where it's, it's nothing, nothing new, nothing special. But as an experience, what's it like? What's it like sitting with pain? What's it like sitting with a mental state of boredom, <coughs> distraction, anger, lust? Can you bring your mind to see it just as an object of mind arising and ceasing? And to see and know feelings arising and passing away rather than reacting to them and so on. This is the kind of task that we're rising to. <clears throat> what Ajahn Chah would encourage us to do is use quality of wiriya rampa. Wiriya rampa means persistent effort, or continuous effort in order to overcome suffering. And really that's what we're developing. If we come to an evening meeting that's three hours long, then you have to put in effort. But you can trust that Ajahn Chah <coughs> and other teachers before him have done this and found good results from it. So it's a matter of putting that to the test for yourself. If you haven't got results from your practice yet, don't worry, just carry on. Maybe it's a matter of just going back to square one and keep applying yourself to the meditation techniques, keep bringing up effort, looking and learning and giving yourself time. And the Buddha called it a gradual training. Even though we would love to have experiences of sudden realization, sudden enlightenment, 
I think most people would agree if you look over a period of time it's, it's a gradual process of the mind becoming more aware more aware of itself more aware of its strengths more aware of its weaknesses more aware of its good parts more aware of its faults that can only come through developing mindfulness and contemplating the mind itself and the way it operates so as they say there's no no such thing as a bad meditation it's all a place you can learn from and often the very times when we have the most distraction, the most suffering going on in the mind, that's the time when we can learn the most. As we know, the more we practice, there will be times when the mind gets to a certain state of peace. It may not be the deepest level of samadhi, but there'll be some calm, some peace. And that's always, it's always tempting to indulge in that, <clears throat> to accept that as good enough and to be just quietly um, sitting with that peaceful feeling or walking with the peaceful feeling. There's nothing wrong with that because it's a wholesome dhamma arising but then what takes over is the clinging to it and the clinging to it often leads to a kind of dullness. So even the peace of meditation can be a trap that we can fall into. It can lull us into a sense of complacency and then we don't investigate further. So we always have to be sharp and on our guard. Even when the mind is peaceful we have to alert ourselves to possible pitfalls. Keep looking, say is there any more causes for suffering in here? And you can see sometimes you have a nice peaceful period, especially if you've been on self-retreat, not talking to anyone, just being on your own. You might have a nice peaceful time and think, oh, this is it, this is the real practice. And then you come out of it and you meet somebody and very quickly you get thrown around again by your own moods and distractions. Maybe it will lead to a feeling, oh, I don't want to mix with anyone, I don't want to have anything to do with anybody. We have to be careful because maybe that's actually being conditioned by our own desire for <clears throat> for the feelings of peace, trying to cling on to them, make them last longer. Ajahn Chah used to say, if, if you cling on to peace in that way, you only want to practice in a place where you can control the conditions and make it nice and peaceful and don't have anyone disturb you and don't have any extra work or duties or whatever. Well, you can attain some peace, but it won't be enlightenment. It'll be peace that's a cause for foolishness to arise in the mind or heedlessness to arise in the mind. As soon as there's any kind of unwelcome stimulation, then we get angry or annoyed or disappointed said we have to learn to contemplate, contemplate in all postures, and contemplate all our sense contact. When we come out of a retreat situation and we mix with people or we're more active, we have to contemplate. We have to establish mindfulness at our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, with the body, with the mind. 
because that's where you'll get wisdom. You'll see the uncertainty of pleasure and pain, and the uncertainty of pleasure that comes with samadhi, the uncertainty of pain, painful feelings come and go. Nothing is sure, even the thought, oh, this is samadhi, or oh, is this the cause for enlightenment? Still not sure. The wise person uses this reflection, keep bringing up the reflection on the uncertainty of conditions, uncertainty of mental contact, sense contact, reflecting in this way that you, you don't get caught out by anything. Where the meditation is going bad, med meditation is going good, it's not sure. You're having a good day, a bad day, an intermediate, mediocre day, it's not sure. In the end, the aim, the aim is to get to have, have enough mindfulness and enough insight just to see conditions as what they are, they're just conditions. Moods are just moods, thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings, memories are just feelings, memories. And this body is just body made up of four elements. As soon as we lose our mindfulness, lose our ability to investigate the Dhamma, then that sense of ownership comes in again. And we take ownership of every thought, every feeling, take ownership of the body, and that's where all the doubt and anxiety starts to arise again, because we feel like we own it. Our aim is to develop this wisdom faculty and develop the mindfulness, the samadhi to support it to the point where we can reflect on our own experience and detach the mind from itself and look back and say, mm, this is just the way it is. Thoughts are just this way. Good thoughts are this way, bad thoughts are that way. Feelings are this way, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings. But there's no one in there, there's no one who actually is those things. They're just phenomena, they're just conditions that arise according to different causes, causal factors. <coughs> you notice when you have been practicing for a while, then maybe you do experience some more solid or sustained periods of peace. Maybe a feeling of contentment arises. That's obviously a good thing, and it's something that will have a very powerful effect on the mind. And most of us are here because we've done some meditation before and we've found some peace from it. That contentment will help to change your mind, the way it looks to the world. It gives you a new, like a new set of values. So like before when we were lay person people, all our values were based on more um, deluded things, materialistic things and so on. Things that make us feel good, pleasure, we see as good, give value and importance to them. Things that bring us pain, we don't like, don't want and so on. But we're always chasing craving craving and attachment. But now if you've experienced some peace, it starts to give you a new awareness of yourself when you say, mm, perhaps the most important thing in this world is really this peace of mind. All the external things, 
all the things I formerly are attached to, you know, however good they were or are, they're still very temporary and they're very unreliable. What you notice is the peace of samadhi is something very difficult to harm, difficult to destroy. If there's some real continuity of mindfulness, some real peace comes up sometimes. Something very, very special. So then when you're using that as a way of learning about yourself, you want to preserve it, you want to keep it more. You don't want to lose it, you don't want to let things damage it or harm it or take it away. So you start to rearrange your value system and the way you lead your life. You start to be more careful what you say, what you do. You start to be more reflective on cause and effect, the process of karma, how it affects your mind and so on. So it's very important in a time like this in the Vasa, really put effort into the practicing you know, on a daily basis. Just set aside other concerns, other issues as much as you can and put effort into formal sitting, walking meditation. And even if you only experience a few bits of peace here and there, you find these can be very valuable in giving you insight into how to further your Dhamma practice how to protect the mind, how to avoid falling back into some of the old bad habits and so on. So there's much for us to learn. Uh, this is only the first day, so we can spend uh, the evening practicing together. As I said, there'll be some chanting at about 9.30. Um, for now, you can um, sit and walk as you feel. <laughs>